So, Matt, I was thinking about this and thought you might find this interesting. Adults are actually way better fighters than infants. It makes sense, right? Yeah. But more battles seem to be won by infantry than adultery. (laughs) (laughs) That's just, uh, that's very punny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hey, uh... I'm dry, so that's always a good thing. Hey, that's good. That's good. <laughs> it's pouring yeah. up here. Storms. I'm liable to get struck by lightning sitting up here. So, well, at least we'll get it on video. I get okay. it on video, man. Uh, that'll that'll <laughs> boost the views there. Uh, yeah, y'all are getting uh, y'all are getting the rain that we got at like 3 a.m. And I hate it when storms come through at night or when they're dark. You know, I don't want to be asleep and then NATO's coming through. Which that reminds me, I got to say this before we get into the the episode. I've told you, but um, I went up this past weekend to visit with grandma and mom and kind of help them out a little bit and met up with Matt. Yep. Help uh, his kid with some guitar stuff. And then we talked shop and all that. But I was driving through Little Rock, Arkansas, and I'm driving through and I'm, I'm like, man. It looks nasty out here. It is like there was this weird haze through the whole city. Never looked like that before. I get onto I-40 going east, heading to Nashville, and I'm maybe five miles outside of Little Rock. And all of a sudden, I notice in front of me, it's like this wall on the interstate. And what it is, is the wind is so bad. I'm white knuckling to keep it in the the lanes, but the wind is so bad. It's blowing dust out of one of the freshly plowed fields across the interstate. So it whited out the interstate for maybe 50, 60 feet. Jeez. So when you got in the middle of it, you couldn't see anything but the lines a foot or two in front of you and the taillights. So it was kind of creepy. It was weird. I make it to my grandmother's house and my mom's like, uh, when did you go through Little Rock? And I told her and she goes, uh, look at the news. And she's got it on mm-hmm. literally like an hour or so after I had passed through Little Rock is when the tornadoes hit. God. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking about it. As soon as he gets into Nashville, he's messaging me. Yeah. I'm like, you can, know, can you like, believe I it? just apparently missed a couple of tornadoes. <laughs> yep. Man, I've said it before. I've got somebody looking out for me because that's not the first yeah. time that I have looked behind me and seen destruction that I barely escaped. So, man, you, you just think you could have you could have pulled over and eaten it yeah. at Whataburger, and that would have been the difference, and you'd have been right in the middle of that. Exactly. Yeah. If I'd have taken a break or started a little bit later in the morning or both, I could have been driving through Little Rock trying to dodge all those tornadoes. That would have been Ugh. horrible. So. 
Yeah, we're we're thinking about the people in Little Rock and everywhere else that the tornadoes hit. But I just thought I had to say that this will come out a couple weeks after the tornadoes hit. But still, I mean, shoo. But uh, so real quick, little housekeeping. We want to say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find a list of shows that we're associated with in the Podbelly Network. And it's probably some shows that you might not find any other way. And I promise you're going to find something on there that you're going to like. We also want to thank tonight's sponsors, Lomi. And we love Lomi. So we will definitely talk about them shortly coming up. Um, And while you're on the Internet, doing your internet stuff, whatever it is you cool people do on the internet, uh, go to patreon.com slash graveyard tales, and you can sign up to become a patron. We've got three different levels. Each one of them has their own little thing where you can get maybe video like the $10 patrons. They get video of us recording these episodes and they get video of the bonus episodes. So if you want to see us, then go there and become a $10 patron. Um, and the $10 patron also gets an ad free version of the episode that we're putting out. So if you don't want to deal with the ads, then sign up to become a $10 patron. Yep. Yep. All right. So let's take a second and talk about Lomi by Pila. Now you heard us talk about it before. And you know that Matt and I love our Lomis. But if you haven't heard it before, Matt and I both had issues with composting for for many years because you've got a large container out back that's full of nasty smelling, basically rotting food. And it takes forever to actually do the work and turn out the product that it's supposed to produce well that was until we found Lomi now with this little toaster oven sized machine we can put all of our food scraps into it hit a button and we've got dirt in a few hours so Lomi allows you to turn these food scraps and everything into a a soil that you can throw into your garden or your potted plants in the house in like under four hours for the most part. One of the cool things, Matt, there is no smell when you run it. Oh, it yeah. doesn't smell. They have charcoal filters in it so that you can leave stuff in there. You don't have to run uh-huh. it just as soon as you put stuff in there. You can put some stuff in there, leave it till the next dinner, and then when you fill it up, run it. And the other cool thing is my garbage doesn't stink anymore because you throw these food scraps into the loamy, they're not rotting away in your garbage can, making your garbage can in your house stink. Right. I mean, you know, I, I hate to go total fanboy on this, but this thing is so incredibly cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we keep we have a spot for our you know our our loamy container, and when you're when you're prepping dinner, you 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 cut. Uh, your onion peels, mm-hmm. they go in there, not in the right. trash. Okay? You, you peel a banana, the peel goes in there, not in the trash. Okay? So as you're prepping dinner, all that scraps that you would scoop off and throw in your garbage, we put them in the loamy. Because, number one, you know, it's a better it's a better spot than in the trash so it doesn't stink like Adam's. <laughs> and number two is we're going to use this to make dirt 
that we can put in our garden. I use it in my house mm-hmm. plants. And and Adam's right. I've stuck my face down there just trying. You cannot smell right. it. You cannot smell it. It, it, is, it is just incredible. And the amount of time that it takes to turn these food scraps in, into dirt, into usable dirt, I mean, you, you can get that in about four hours. Right. And you said scraps. It's literally scraps. You can scrape your plates into loamy. Most of the time with composting, you can't put meat or dairy or bread in there. You can only do vegetable matter. But what's mm-hmm. awesome about loamy, you can put you can put meat, you can put cheese in there. I don't pour your milk in there, obviously. You don't want to put liquids in there, but you can throw meat and dairy scraps into the loamy, and it will turn that into dirt. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. You get you get less garbage. Okay, you're you're doing something more productive with your garbage, um, which is reducing you know the amount of garbage that's going to landfills. Um, you're getting dirt that, you, like you said, you can use in your garden, in your house plants, or just spread it around in your yard. Um, and, and you're doing something that's that's helping the environment. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're producing less waste. And the waste that you do have, you're doing something great mm-hmm. with it. So if you want to start making a positive environmental impact, or you just want to clean up after dinner and make it a lot easier... Lomi is perfect for you. Just go to lomi.com slash grave. That's L-O-M-I dot com slash G-R-A-V-E and use our promo code grave to get $50 off your Lomi. That's right. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com L-O-M-I dot com slash G-R-A-V-E and use our promo code GRAVE at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you a trip out to the garbage can. So, Matt, that's all I've got for housekeeping and my nearly uh, nearly getting dead story. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us, what are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, so tonight... Um, th- this is going to be a different graveyard tales episode than what you're used to. Yep. We are, we are branching out a little bit, um, to talk about something that we don't know. We, we may touch on them, but we're always got that paranormal slant to it. No, no paranormal slant tonight. Not necessarily. Um, I can probably figure one out. We we could make one, <laughs> but but because yeah, you're walking through there at night. Imagine. Oh, um, but uh, we're gonna do a little true crime tonight, and dum, we dum, dum. we're gonna talk about this a, a, a place in Texas, um, Calder Road Field, which is along I-45 in League City, Texas, and that area became a, a, a site of just fascination when it was revealed to be the site of tons of horrific murders. Yep. 
So over 30 years, these murders took place there. So tonight, Adam and I, we're going to look at a little true crime and discuss the Texas killing fields. Oh, yeah. And they're infamous, so I'm pretty sure you've heard heard tell of them before. Uh, yeah, and um, you know if you haven't if you haven't already, there's a documentary on Netflix that is out about them. Right, you know, it just it's been out maybe a month. Uh, Adam and I both had the opportunity to watch that, and uh, very very good. We're we're not going to go into that kind of in depth, um, but we are going to look at this with a little graveyard tale spin on it. All right, so as we always say, go check our sources down at the bottom of the show notes. You can find where we found this information. You can expand on it because, like Matt said, we're not going to go into quite as much uh, depth or or to that degree that the documentary went into because, I mean, they had a multi-part documentary that we're just, we don't have the luxury of that kind of time. So... We're going to give you enough information where you know what happened there, but uh-huh. then if it interests you, you can then follow up with watching the documentary or in our sources, continue the research with one of our sources. So as Matt said, it's called the Texas Killing Fields, and it is a 25-acre patch of land in League City, Texas, along Interstate Highway 45, like Matt was saying. And since the 1970s, 30 bodies have been found in and around the area, leading to that haunting name of the Texas Killing Fields. Yeah. And, you know, the the name comes from um, the the killing fields in Cambodia while they were under the the regime of the Khmer Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, and as this as these cases became more and more known and the numbers kept going up they just they said this is like the the texas killing field mm-hmm. so that that's where the name comes from it it actually is taken from that uh from the killing fields in cambodia right which i right. didn't realize there was that connection but that's yeah. that's where it is i i didn't until like either we talked about it or it, it it just kind of came up yesterday, and I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Maybe it was something I was mm-hmm. reading. I don't know. Um, now, the majority of the victims have been girls and young women between the ages of 12 and 25 years old. But there are some outliers mm-hmm. in there, which I'll discuss and touch on here in a minute, and then we'll get a little more in depth. Now, let's look at League City, Texas real quick. It's got a population estimated as of July 2021 of 115,595. So the population per mile is only 2,231 per mile, which that's that's up quite a bit since the 1970s and 80s Uh when most of these murders were taking place. Now, this next bit comes from the League League City, Texas government site. And it says uh, it's in Galveston County and League City is a waterfront community nestled along the shores of Clear Lake, 30 miles south of downtown Houston with proximity to Galveston Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. The city 
regularly ranks among the safest, most affordable, and best places to live and raise a family in the state of Texas and in the U.S. And see, I, I noticed that in several places. They even discussed this on the documentary where they said there is a town right outside of League City called um, Friend, Friendship or Friendsville, something like that, Texas. And they said it was also designated one of the safest places. But if you're looking at what actually Friendswood, that's it. Yeah. Um, if if you discount the Texas killing fields, yes, I agree with you. But you kind of have to factor in these killing fields in that deal. But I mean, you don't as a government want to turn people off to your city by going, hey, we got a big body dump site over here. But other than that, we're pretty good. And Lake City is kind of like a, a beach town almost. Yeah, um, pretty close it, to it. It's right there on the coast, um, which was interesting when we look at some of the cases because some of them are, you know, you hear them talking about like island girls and mm-hmm. surfers and things like that. And I'm in my head, I'm going, I'm talking about Texas. <laughs> yeah, well. You know, yeah. Texas got a coast too, dummy. Yep, we do. You know, so. <laughs> we do. And we talked about a haunted place down there in Port Aransas. That's right. Right. I mean, it's it's a lot like the Keys. So yeah, yeah. Texas being as large as it as it is, we've got a bunch of everything. If you <laughs> if you need that's it, right. Texas probably has it. Yeah. So let's look at some of the victims that are said to be related to the killing fields. Now, not all of these get mentioned when people discuss the murders at the killing fields. So I wanted to at least mention some of them mm-hmm. um, and get them out there so that maybe if they're not talked about on another another podcast episode somewhere or the documentary, we at least give them their due and and mention them. And these are in no particular order. Um, Colette Wilson, age 13, was last seen June 17th, 1971, and her body was discovered November 26, 1971. Brenda Jones, 14, last seen July 1st, 1971, discovered November 26, 1971. Rhonda Johnson, 14, was uh, disappeared on August 4th of 71, found January 3rd of 72. Sharon Shaw, 13, disappeared August 4th of 71, found January 3rd of 72. Gloria Gonzalez, 19, missing October 28th, 1971, found November 23rd, 1971. But, uh, you know, there's several of these names. We're going to go into a little bit more specifics on their case. Um, Right, right. A little bit later in the show. Uh, so, I mean, but you're, you're getting, you're getting the idea. Um, I mean, these are young, you know, early, early teen, teenage women, young, uh, young adults. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It, it was, I, I must admit it, it was difficult reading a lot of this, um, even more so than it was watching the documentary. Mm. It seems kind of strange, but there's something about when you're reading the news articles 
when you're reading the stuff when it actually happened, you know, it, it, something that happened that long ago becomes so real and you're right. just like, my God, yep. you know what that, what that community must have felt during this time. It, yeah. I, I can't imagine. Um, cause I'm not gonna, I'm going to hit a few more here, but I'm not going to hit all 30 and you got to think there were minimum of 30. There may have yeah. been more. Yeah. Now, Kimberly Ray Pitchford was 16, mm-hmm. disappeared January 3rd of 73, was found January 5th of 73, and Brooks Bracewell, 12, September 6th, 1974, and was found April 3rd of 1981, and she disappeared with her friend, Georgia Greer, 14. Mm-hmm. She disappeared same day and was found on the same day. And so that was a little outside of the norm when it came to what they expected from this killer, because up to that point, he, he had just been picking out single Mm. young Mm -hmm. girls and women. And this time he got two. Um, Now, Heidi Villarreal Phi, which I have actually heard her, I've heard it pronounced Heidi, but I also heard her cousin or something call her Heed. Yeah. So I'm not sure which, if it's Heed or Heidi, but I think it's Heed since the family said that. She was 23, disappeared October 10th of 83, and they didn't find her until April 4th of 84. Mm-hmm. Now, jumping a little bit in age-wise, you've got Audrey Cook. She was 30. She disappeared December of 85, and they found her body February 2nd of 86. Now, Shelly Sykes was 19. She disappeared May 24th of 86. They have yet to find her remains, but she's associated with the Texas killing fields because of proximity to where she disappeared. Right. Um, the same goes with Suzanne Renee uh, Richardson, she was 22, disappeared October 7th, 1988, still hadn't found her uh, remains as of today. Now, one of the outliers is Tot Harriman. Mm-hmm. She was 57. Uh, mm-hmm. She disappeared July 12th of 2001, but no remains have been found, but because of proximity to the killing fields. A couple couple more recent ones were Sarah Trusty, 23. She disappeared July 12th of 2002 and was found July 27th of 2002. And Teresa Venegas was 16, disappeared October 31st of 2006 and was found November 3rd of 2006. So a lot of the newer cases don't get publicized as much when you're talking about the killing fields. Yeah. Because most of these are focused on the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And you got to understand, this isn't like they're searching somebody's backyard when we said they hadn't found remains, but yet they they have pieced things together to believe that their their disappearance is connected with, with the killing fields. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's it's a huge piece of property. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yep. it's enormous. Um, you know, it, it's the kind of thing. You know, you're talking about a needle in a haystack. That's that's what you're looking for. Because it um, wasn't like a bush hogged field, right? It was overgrown and yeah. very few trails through there. And that's important to remember because that plays into why uh, Calderfield um, would have been used by sure. a yeah. murderer. You know, it's it's swampy and wet terrain, which makes it difficult to to catch whoever is responsible. It also makes it difficult to find remains or evidence. Um, you know, it doesn't take long for, you know, a, a piece of evidence to lay out there in that wet, mm-hmm. um, overgrown where there's there's wildlife. You know, you think if there's something out there that might have had some DNA on it, that DNA is going to degrade so quickly. Oh, yeah. Even oh, if yeah. that thing doesn't just decompose while it's out there, whether it's a piece of clothing, you know, a glove, uh, maybe a rope, anything like that that would possibly carry some evidence that would point a finger towards a suspect, it's not going to hold up to the elements if they don't find it quickly. Right. Water Um, is one of the biggest killers of evidence like that. Yeah. And, you know, when the the bodies first started showing up out here, um, you know, forensic science wasn't what it is today. Oh, yeah. Um, And a lot of the victims were considered to be potential runaways. Uh, or they had other, you know, troubles at home or in school or or things like that that a lot of teenagers have to go through, and it was really difficult to to get the police on board with a lot of these because they thought, well, you know, it's you know, it's a runaway. It's, she'll be back, you know, she'll be back. She's probably with her boyfriend. Um, you know, she's out on, you know, she's. She got mad and left the house, whatever. Yeah, you know, so the police common. were kind of hesitant to jump on it in that in that critical first, you know, two to three days of an investigation. And uh, something else to consider is the fact that where it's located right off of Interstate 45, which, you know, that connects Houston and Galveston, that highway being right there makes it extraordinarily easy for a killer to enter and exit without being seen. Right. You know, and, and especially in the seventies um, where it was developed even less in that area, it was a, a lot more likely that you could get in, do what you were doing and get out and nobody would ever come by and see you there. Right. You yeah. know, wouldn't, wouldn't see a vehicle, you know, wouldn't call in a suspicious you know, van or truck or anything like that because they didn't see it. Right. And like you said, during the 70s and 80s, the police response initially was, ah, they're a, they're a teen, they're, they're a run, runaway. And I, I'll talk more about this toward the end, but I have to say it now since it's it kind of pertains. I think a lot of the officers doing this investigation were pretty inept. And because at the time it wasn't a common occurrence to have murders in league city, 
It was one of the safest places to live. Right. A, they didn't have any clue of how to proceed. And B, they didn't want to proceed because they didn't want their city to be known as a murderous city. So you had them say, oh, well, just wait, just wait. They'll come back. And they did that for weeks to a couple of the families. And then they decided to say, oh, well, you know, they were they were kind of into drugs. So it's like, okay, so they were into drugs so they can be disappeared and murdered and you don't care. Is that what you're saying? So I have kind of an issue with the police department and with their reaction to Mm. these disappearances at the time, because it, it made them seem inept at their Mm -hmm. jobs. And I, I don't think now we certainly have changed how we respond to a child disappearance or mm-hmm. a teen disappearance. But back then it was, it was this way for adults and children where now it's like, well, adults as an adult, you can disappear and you don't have to tell anybody. So mm-hmm. unless there's evidence of foul play, the cops are not going to initially investigate a adult that went missing. But right now, if we call up and say, Hey, my kid is missing. They've been missing, supposed to be here 10 minutes ago. You know, they'll jump on it if it seems like they need to. Then, I don't know, it was a different time. It, and the thinking was different. They didn't assume that there would be a serial killer. But like Matt also alluded to, their forensics were not what they are now. And I don't think they handled it like they should, even with their forensics not being up to snuff. Right. Right. So one of the people associated now with the Texas Killing Fields is a guy named Clyde Hedrick. And I want to look at him real quick before Matt gets into some of the cases so we kind of understand who they are pinning this on. Now, Clyde Hedrick currently is a 68-year-old guy who was a convicted criminal. Now, if you watch the documentary on the killing fields, you heard about Clyde, but he had a pretty extensive rap sheet. Even before he got uh, this pinned on him, he he had an extensive rap sheet. They included offenses against minors, uh, minors and strangers, former partners, and offenses against the state. Hedrick also had been charged with enticing a child, aggravated kidnapping, sexual assault, criminal trespassing, terroristic threat, attempted arson, theft, possession of marijuana, and driving while intoxicated. So he sounds like a stand-up gentleman, doesn't he? That's right. He That's, is a he he is a uh, productive member of society. Absolutely. He's yeah. he's producing no, something. No chance. This guy is a he is a piece. Right. Let me tell you. One of the other things that Hedrick was convicted of is, I don't remember how many years prior to these murders starting, but he went to jail for a year because he was with a woman and they were, they got together at a bar and then went swimming. And she went missing. Well, they found her body later 
stuffed under a disposed couch that was out there in a field. And when questioned, because Clyde was the last person seen with her, he said that she drowned in the lake and he was afraid that he was going to get in trouble for murder, even though he didn't do anything. So he hid her body to keep himself from getting in trouble. Well, because of the lack of forensics and the lack of evidence that they could pin on him, he got a year for tampering with a corpse. So he went to jail for a year for tampering with a corpse and then got out prior to these murders starting in League City. So that kind of adds to why people may think (laughs) this guy probably had something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's got, he's definitely got the history. Yeah, yeah. Now, Hedrick was actually released from prison in 2021 after only serving eight years of a 20-year sentence for the death of Ellen Beeson, which I'm sure we'll get into. But he originally only served a year for the abuse of the corpse, like I said, until the FBI exhumed uh, Beeson's body in 2012. And additional evidence led him to be charged and found guilty of manslaughter in 2014. So that's the the case I was mentioning earlier. So they actually got him, but he only served eight years. And it wasn't even in conjunction with any of the Texas killing field murders. Though they suspect him. Mm hmm. So according to Texas EquiSearch, this early release was because of the mandatory release law. And according to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles website, quote, mandatory supervision is a legislatively mandated release of a prisoner to parole supervision when the combination of actual calendar time and good conduct time, good conduct time equal the sentence. Good conduct time is credited to an offender for participating in work and self-improvement programs. Now, upon being released, Hedrick was given an ankle monitor for GPS tracking. So they're keeping track of him. But let's briefly look at uh, when he was younger. So around the time of the major activity at the Texas Killing Fields. When he was younger, he actually relocated from Florida to Texas. So he's originally a Florida native, and he moved to Texas as a young man due to the rise of the fast-paced cities like Houston. So he moved there for work. He subsequently attained a stable job as a roofer in the construction industry. Um, He used to spend a lot of his leisure time hanging around local bars and nightclubs, and he would enter the dancing competitions at these bars and would win a lot of them. So a lot of the conjecture and theory is that this is how he met the women that a a lot of the women that they say he murdered. Uh, Now, he's not the only suspect, which we'll get into, but as far as if it were him, they're assuming this is how he would meet a lot of these women in their 20s. Now, the Netflix series on the Killing Fields mentions that Hedrick was, quote, a good-looking man back in the day and, and, quote, considered himself a ladies' man. So, I mean, now, now, granted, it hadn't been pinned on Hedrick, but Hedrick is who the, the documentary 
kind of focuses kinda leans on. towards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and who a lot of people associated with the women who were killed lean toward. Yeah. And you know, it, Adam and I were talking about this before um, we started recording um, because of the time frame, the the thirty year span here, right? It, it and the and the number of victims. You know, it, this is not doesn't look like the work of a single serial killer. No, it does not. Um, not even like a pair of serial killers working together. This is different, different people with different. I don't even know what you say, but not background. No, just no different yeah. issues that, yep. you know, at, at different times where, you know, this, whatever it was triggered them to do this. And so we're going to, we're going to look at another one um, and, and look at some of these cases but understand there are three distinct time periods when these killings uh, occurred. Um, between 1971 and 1977, there were 11 bodies found. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, there were a new series of murders that happened along a different stretch of I-45 in League City. And then in 1991, there was another woman's remains uh, that were found in the same area of the killing fields. And of course, when Adam was going through the list, um, there's a victim from 2001. So, you know, theoretically we could be looking at four different, different uh, eras of these murders. Yeah. Which is crazy to think of, first of all, because you think of all, all the other places that there have been serial killers and you don't see either overlapping or consecutive serial killers mm-hmm. that get rid of bodies there. And I told you this, and I, I, I have to bring it up. I told you I was going to try to find a way to bring this up. We were watching the documentary, and Michael came downstairs, and he goes, what you watching? And so I told him, and he goes, what are the killing fields? So I told him. And I said, you know, to me and Matt as well, it seems like there's multiple serial killers, not just one guy doing all this through the years. And he goes, now, wouldn't that be weird if they met each other there? One was dumping a body and another one showed up to dump a body. And they're like, oh, hey, what are you doing? Well, uh, what are you doing? And I started laughing. I'm like, from the brain of my 11 year old. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that it is. It, it's it's. You know, it's humorous to think about that situation when you're, you know, looking at something that's this horrific. You got to have um, some, find some humor in it. Cause, right. I mean, you know, if you, like I said, reading this stuff was, it almost turned your stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but let's start with, um, with one of the victims, um, that Adam mentioned earlier, and that's 14 year old Brenda Jones, mm-hmm. whose murder is, is widely thought to be the one that kicked off this killing spree. Right. Now, she disappeared while walking to visit her aunt in Galveston on July 1st, 1971. And her body was recovered the next day on July 2nd. Four months later, 
the bodies of 15-year-olds Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson were discovered in Turner's Bayou on November 17th. Okay, so now we've got we've got three murders, three See that three. <laughs> one, my, hands, two, my hand isn't working anymore. One, two, three, three. <laughs> three. I see it. <laughs> three murders in a span of four months. Right. Okay. Which that's a lot, period. Okay. That's a lot in a short amount of time. And, and Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson were the quote unquote surfer girls that I mentioned earlier. That was right. how they were described. But both girls were last seen on November 15th, two days prior, accepting a ride from a man in a white van near an ice cream shop. Now, the bodies of of the girls were found together, and they were bound and only partially clothed. Now, although their case was never solved, Investigators looked into one particular suspect years after the murders. So in in 1993, Edward Harold Bell was convicted of the 1978 killing of one Larry Dickens, who was an ex-Marine from Pasadena, California. Now, the story with this particular crime was that Dickens had confronted Bell, who was a serial sex offender, regarding Bell having exposed himself to a group of neighborhood girls. Now, Dickens' mother witnessed this happening from her garage, where Dickens had fled to after being shot. So Dickens sees what's going on. He goes over to uh, Her- uh, Edward Bell's truck, confronts him about this, and then Bell surprises him by pulling a gun and shooting him. Jeez. So Dickens runs. He's, he's out in the road in front or near his home, and he runs to the garage where his mother has just witnessed this entire scene, and he collapses in the garage. Now. As his mother is trying to calm him down, Bell walks into the garage with a rifle that he had brought from his truck and shot Larry in the forehead. Mm. So, you know, Bell, not only did he shoot this guy after doing something as terrible as, as exposing himself to young girls, he comes up and basically executes this guy in front of his mother. Yeah, that's horrible. Now, Bell was arrested shortly after this, okay? But after being released on bond, he ran and became a fugitive for the next 14 years. Wow. So I'm like, how do you even release this guy on bond? You had somebody standing right there, saw him do it. No joke. That should be one of those one of those cases where a a bond is not even offered. This guy is obviously a threat. He's obviously dangerous. And why you didn't think he was a flight risk? And so you're like, oh, we'll we'll release him on bond. He'll come back. Uh, no, 
The dude yeah. is, he's dead to rights, no pun intended, on what he did. Mm-hmm. And you think he's just going to show back up for some court date? That's not how, that's yeah. not how criminals work, man. Right. So for 14, year, 14 years, Bell is a fugitive from the law. Now, Bell was the subject of a segment on a 1992 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And after the episode aired, several people came forward with information that eventually led to his arrest in Panama City, Panama. Oh, wow. And then he was subsequently extradited to the U.S., where he was tried and found guilty of of the murder of Larry Dickens and sentenced to 70 years in prison. Okay? Uh, Good. haven't, Haven't really talked about the killing fields yet, but it's coming. In 1998, okay, so Bell's been in prison for about five years. He wrote several letters to prosecutors in both Galveston and Harris counties claiming that he had killed seven teenage girls in their jurisdictions between 1971 and 1977. Now, despite these gruesome claims, the letters were actually kept secret until 2011. When they They were finally revealed by retired Galveston homicide detective Fred Page. Uh, who revealed them to the public in an attempt to uncover any potential leads that could verify Bell's accounts. So, so Edward Bell essentially confesses to seven murders of young women in Galveston and Harris counties between the years of 71 and 77. Why do you keep it secret, though? Why do you keep the letter secret? You know, they, I don't know. I really, I really don't know. Other than, um, they they wanted to prevent any kind of copycat or or any anybody from the public coming forward with information that was not going to be helpful, or yeah, that might lead I mean, them in another direction. But I I think maybe you do that for the first month. Yeah. Okay. And if in that first month you haven't produced any evidence that's going to tie him to these murders, then y- you open it wide up. Hey, tell us. We think we have a viable suspect mm-hmm. for at least some of these murders. If you know anything, yeah, come forward and tell us. Well, and you don't have to release all the letters. Release some of them. Get the interest started. But... That goes back to the ineptitude that I was talking about. What, right. The, some of the decisions that this police force made is just mind-boggling. And, I mean, in the, in the documentary, one of the parents say, well, if you want to commit a crime, come to League City because these cops sure won't catch you. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I know he was mad, but it's kind of true. And Ashley was saying the same thing. She's like, this... This police force is just, it's crazy. I know. And, and I, I tried to wrap my head around the keeping the, I think, okay, even if you don't release the letters to the public, at least tell the public that you have them. Yeah. Give them some information to go on. You never know what you're going to come up with. And, and I would really, I would really hate to think that there was any kind of influence to keep these 
these letters back in order to preserve the image of the town. Yeah, but and I and I guess that's a possibility, but I, I sure would hate that you know, if you've got multiple murders in this area that you would be more concerned about how the town looked. Now understand, I'm just I'm just talking. I'm not saying that anybody affiliated with League City or oh, course, the League yeah, City no. Police Department did this. It's just but we already know theories. that that was a that was on their mind, right? Um, so yeah, you you don't want to believe that something like that happened, but for whatever reason, they kept them private. Well, I've got another. You don't want to believe it happened, but I'll wait till we get closer to the end. Just remind me because it's a theory okay. that ashley and i both spurred out at about the same time oh so. gosh okay okay so um a houston chronicle reporter spoke with bell in july and september um of that year and he claimed to the reporter that he actually committed 11 murders and he referred to them as the quote 11 that went to heaven So Bell claimed that his victims were from Houston, Galveston, Webster, and Dickinson. Now, five of the murders occurred in 1971, and six more occurred from 74 to 77. Six of them were murdered in pairs. Now, he names Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson, the two 15-year-old Galveston surfer girls, who vanished after hitchhiking uh, as two of the victims from 1971. Now, he allegedly shot them and then dumped their remains close to a deserted bridge. His confession matched details of the crime scene. Additionally, Bell had also owned a white van, had made a purchase at the local surf shop, where the girls frequented and had a trailer in the bayou near where Ackerman and Johnson were found. So, I mean, you know, I think if he, if he has details about the crime scene that weren't released to the public, then there you go right there. When you add all this other stuff that I guess by itself um, could be viewed as circumstantial, uh, I mean, how many people had white vans? You know, yeah. probably a lot. There's certainly but, a lot of circumstantial, but like you said, if he's got stuff that was not released to the public, how yeah. else is he going to get that information? Mm-hmm. If he's not an officer that worked it, if he's yeah. not was wasn't there with the killer, he's got to be the killer. And well, I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, but you 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 said okay. So he confesses he could obviously have gotten their names from the news, um, would know probably roughly where they were, but he wouldn't know any details necessarily. But then you add on top of that, oh, well, they were last seen getting in a white van with a male. He had a white van. He he made a purchase. They were able to link a purchase at the surf shop that the girls went to often. Um, so now he, you've, you've got him in the area. Okay. And he had a trailer near the area where the bodies were found. So now you've got a link to the area where the girls were murdered and you've got a link to the area where the girls were found. 
So I mean, he he looks good for these two, and and he and plus he's saying, "Hey, I did it." Right. Now, another victim from 1971 was 13-year-old Colette Wilson, who Adam mentioned earlier as well. Now, Colette vanished after leaving a band camp. She disappeared on County Road 99 and Highway 6 after she was dropped off by her band director. Her body was found five months later near the Attic's Reservoir. Now, Bell referred to another victim as Pitchford, who was later revealed to be Kimberly Ray Pitchford, age 16. And Adam mentioned her as well. She was last seen at Dobie High School, where she was there for a driving test. Her body was found two days later in a ditch in Angleton, Texas, and she had died by strangulation. So Bell claimed that he was unaware of the other victims' names. However, two victims are believed to be Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw, who had vanished from Galveston on August 4th, 1971, just a few months before Debbie and Maria. And their bodies were found together, just like Debbie and Maria. But another man had been convicted for their murder, Michael Lloyd Self. But now, many of the investigators believe that Self was innocent. That, hmm. you know, he was just, he was kind of low-hanging fruit. And, and, and he looked good for this. Which but, we've seen that in other cases. Right. I mean, obviously not cases that we've covered, because <laughs> this is yeah. the first technical case, but... There's been a lot of low-hanging fruit that some of these small small town police forces snatch up because they want to quickly solve it, and they, they don't have the ability to do the forensics or the legwork, and they're like, ah, well, this guy looks good. Let's just go ahead and pin it on him. Yeah, and I, I cannot believe that I didn't put this in note, but I believe that, that Self died in prison. Hmm. Um. So anyway, that's, so that's I, horrible. I believe, if he, I believe that's accurate. If he was innocent and died in prison, that's just that's awful. Yeah, I, you know, I, I yes, you're exactly right. But uh, yeah, in 2000, Michael Lloyd Self died in prison without re- ever receiving a new trial. Uh, he was age 52. Um, but it, it says here that the investigators involved in the case believed that his confession was coerced and that he was wrongly convicted. Um, especially since, uh, Edward Bell, uh, had apparently confessed, uh, to Rhonda and Sharon's murders. Now, when did self get put in jail? Because what I'm, what just hit me was. If Bell wrote these confession letters prior to self being put in jail, no, that he didn't. Seems, okay, he, good. He he did not. Good. Um, because the the letters didn't come out until nineteen eighty eight. Okay, and so um, a self was convicted in nineteen seventy three. Okay, so um. 
So yeah, that particular case that led to self conviction didn't drag out. It wasn't a really long period of time that had passed, but uh, Rhonda and Sharon's murders occurred during that time frame, um, from nineteen seventy one to seventy seven. Um, which puts them right in the in the range for Bell to have been mm-hmm. the actual killer. Yeah. Okay. So all four of these victims disappeared near Bell's apartment, and then two more victims that Adam mentioned earlier: twelve-year-old Brooks Bracewell and fourteen-year-old Georgia Greer who were last seen in 1974 and not discovered until 1976 are thought to be the other two victims that he did not name. Right. right. Now, Bell also owned a meadow not far from the shop where they had been last seen, where Brooks and Georgia had been seen. So there's all this evidence that beyond his confession that keeps connecting Bell to the individuals, the victims, to the areas where they were either murdered, abducted, or uh, where the bodies were were left. Right, right. I mean, you know, it, it just, it really looks like, um, you know, Bell's the guy. But the identity of the other three victims are unknown, but one of those three is believed to have been Brenda Jones, where we where we started. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Gloria Gonzalez, whose bones were discovered near Colette Wilson's in October of 71 is thought to be, is thought to be another one. And Susie Bowers, who disappeared from Galveston in 1977 is, is also thought to be the third unnamed victim. Now, Bell's reasoning this is this is what's interesting. Bell asserted that a brainwashing program had pushed him to kill, rape, and expose himself to young girls. He stated that it began with his father and spread to his three ex-wives, scoutmasters, and one of his cousins. After making his confession, he informed a reporter for the Houston Chronicle that he would only offer evidence to support his accusations if he was granted immunity from prosecution. What? So, he's already in prison at this point, serving a 70-year sentence that, you know, at his age was a life sentence. Yeah. He doesn't want to be prosecuted for these 11 murders. And be put to death. And so he's he's offering um the evidence to, you know, potentially give these families some closure as long as he won't be prosecuted for their murders. Right. Okay. Remember that, because that's that's gonna come up here in just a minute. Now, despite the fact that a lot of people thought he was just uh, a you know, a kook, he was just seeking some publicity. Others were certain that Bell had, he was the guy. He was the, you know, it's like we, we, we finally caught up to this guy. You know, we got him convicted of a, of a, of a different murder. And now that he realizes he's never going to see the light of day again, 
he's going to confess to all these all these other murders that we've been trying to solve for all these years. Okay. Um, after learning of his admissions, some detectives actually went back and looked at their evidence in those cases. And prosecutors in Galveston reopened Debbie and Maria's cases after learning new information through their investigation. And Bell was identified as the quote unquote primary suspect in that. However, in neither theirs nor any of the other cases were any charges ever brought against Edward Bell. There was no tangible proof linking him to the other crimes. Bell later asserted that he had made up these confessions in order to receive the death penalty when he was interviewed for the documentary The Eleven in 2017. The, the thing that confuses me about that is he states that he says, well, I just made these up because I wanted the death penalty when he's, uh, you know, being interviewed, he thought that was it. But then we just heard him say, I don't want to be prosecuted for these 11. Bingo. So that makes zero sense to me. And right. that tells me right there that that's another feather in the cap of this dude did it. Yeah, why Why in the world, if, if that was really his motivation, you're right. Why ask for immunity? Right, right. Man, if, if, his, if his job was really, if what he was doing was really to, to be uh, executed, that's what he wanted, why not just come forward with all of that information? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just lay it all out. Give as much details as you can. Look, I, I, I confess, you don't even have to try me. Just, I, I plead guilty, sentence yep. me. Yep. Okay? And they, they would have had no problem. No. Sentencing no, this wouldn't. guy to death, and Texas would have put him down. And they, they would have wiped the slate clean on these 11 people, given the family closure. That's right. Closed the case. But... It feels like maybe his conscience was getting to him, so mm-hmm. he wrote these letters. But then when it came down to it, he's like, crap, I know I'm in jail, but they could put me to death for these. So he's like, I'll give you the rest of this if you don't prosecute me for them. Mm-hmm. And then he doubles down on that a little bit later and goes, nah, I just made it up. I was I was trying to have him kill me and... You know, it sounds like lie after lie to cover That's up right. the fact that he actually did it. But again, this is just conjecture because we don't know for sure. We're not yeah. the so, prosecutors or the the, uh, <laughs> the evidence yeah. gatherers here. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm far from a prosecutor. I can tell you that. But because I'm, I'm more or less the guy that goes, oh, he did it. You know, yeah. <laughs> we got him. And but I do understand that these investigators had to try to find some evidence that would directly link him. That a lot of it was circumstantial outside of his confession. But you know, my my thought process is is you put all that circumstantial evidence together. He's not just he's not just making this up. Mm-hmm. There's there's already enough evidence that points you to Bell. Okay, you, you you make him a primary suspect because man, it's this dude just 
there's too many connections with all these murders. There's too many, too many, too many things like the van, the apartment, you know, he owned the field and the trailer and the bayou and all that. There's just way too much to go. What you just decided you were going to make this up, and, yeah. and then we found all this, all well, this evidence that linked you to these areas. And if he what? made it up, how did he know some of the stuff that wasn't released to the public? Exactly, exactly. So most uh, police departments nowadays, they they still do the thing of holding back some evidence so that they can verify whether you're making crap up or you're telling the truth. Like, yeah. They may not say what the murder weapon was, or they may not say where they were found or certain things that maybe they were tied up with. So if the somebody comes in to admit to it and they mention all these things, they're like, oh, there's no way you could know this in, unless you did it. Yeah. And they'd arrest them and prosecute them right there. But yep. it sounds like this police force dropped the ball a little bit yep. on that. Yeah. Oh, he knows all this stuff that we didn't release, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But Bell died in prison in 2019 at the age of 79 from heart failure. So he he did he he did spend the the rest of his life in prison. Um even though it wasn't for the murder of these 11 girls. Um so we can take a little bit of solace in that, um, that, you know, he, he did, he did lose his freedom and he died behind bars, but it still doesn't really give the families much closure. Um, because there was, they never actually said, yeah, he's guilty. You know, they never even charged him with any of them. Um, but you know, based on what I've, what I read, I think I, I, I go along with these investigators that are now convinced that Bell was definitely the person responsible for the murders between 1971 and 1977. But that still leaves quite a few. Yeah, you know, it does. Ni- 19 other murders um, that are associated with the killing fields um, that they have yet to solve. Right. and. So that that brings me to a couple questions that mm-hmm. I'm going to see what your thoughts are on it before we wrap this up. Now we've we've given you a brief synopsis of the the victims, the area and a couple suspects, but here here the main question, actually let me do my my Small question before I do my main question. Okay. My small question is, what do you think about the possibility of an officer being involved? Because we were looking at it, Ash and I were looking at this, and in the first set of uh, killings and bodies found, the police in what we found and what the documentary found didn't do a real good job of evidence collection or looking into different aspects of it and also not even looking for the girls when they were first reported missing. So there's been other cases where officers have been involved in murder, a murder or multiple murders, and they finally got caught. But do you think 
it's a possibility on some of those that there was an officer involved and he was the one that was steering the investigation away from certain things or do you think it just they just didn't know what the heck they were doing and it just kind of looks fishy well i think anything in that respect is possible um yeah, you know, whether it was some, whether it was an officer that was directly involved with the killings, or was just maybe a compatriot of Bell's who was, you know, helping helping him stay free, um, you know, interfering. But it could have been something as simple as, look, you know, we're we're not really good at this anyway. This is yep. going to be easy, you know. You know, you you lose lose a couple of evidence bags that probably aren't all that beneficial anyway. Um, you know, we, we put out something, an anonymous tip that says, Hey, you need to search over here or take a look at this guy, you know, and then all of a sudden you've got the investigation going in a completely different direction. Um, because as we said, this place was a safe place to live mm. and, these these officers didn't have a whole lot of experience in investigating murders, much less a potential serial killer. Right. So that, you know, I, I think it's possible. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know how probable that is. Yeah. Um, given that the police force had a lot working against them to begin with. Right, right. Yeah, and I kind of, I kind of agree with that. I just had to throw that out there because I think it was just inexperience. And because they were so inexperienced, they A, didn't handle it right. And then B, they were trying to cover up for their inexperience, which made it seem even more of an inept police force and made the, the people, the victims' families a lot more upset. Uh, But my main thought here... And this is obviously putting a graveyard tail spin mm-hmm. on true crime. Do you think that there is something associated with this plot of land, with that field, or with League City, Texas, that would draw killers to use it as a dump site outside of the fact that it's just a, a field that was overgrown and, and easy to hide people in but there was so many in such a small area over over the years do you think that there could be anything paranormally related drawing these people to dump there or kidnap and murder in that area yeah it's it's an interesting thought uh and i and i can't say that um I, I didn't I didn't have that thought as well is what what is the history of this this mm-hmm. area and I think it we would have to go back further than we have I tried man do, do, <laughs> right we would have I've to tried. go back further than what we have documentation to support mm-hmm. um as far as looking at you know Native American tribes that may have you know been in that area um you know any kind of history from you know the 
back when Texas was a part of Mexico, mm-hmm. um, which also makes it difficult, you know, oh, yeah. because, uh, you know, you, you, you can't guarantee that there's any written history about that area when it was a part of Mexico. I spent a whole um, day just on that slant. Yeah. Uh, if I'm being honest, trying to find that information and, but it definitely could be, um, especially when you look at, this was just not, and, and I fully believe this, this was not the dump site for a single killer, no matter who it was. No, no. The time frame doesn't fit. And, and they found evidence that Bell, when he was on the run, he was gone. Okay. He was gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, I mean, hell, he left the country, you know, so he, he made his way and they, they actually found where he had worked, at, you know, in different places around the country and, and how, when he had moved to Panama, um, he had no, he met a lady and around and doing no, anything else. He wasn't that guy that was just going to like, you know, just do, 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 do. No, I mean, you know, he, he got away, mm. you know, he got, he, he got away from this stuff. Just like he got away from, you know, the Larry Dickens case, you know, he put some distance between himself and what he had done. And, sure. you know, so I, you know, when you start looking at those, the murders that occurred in the eighties, you think, well, it, it's not him, you know, it, it's not him. It's somebody else. Is it a copycat? Is it somebody that, you know, invest is looking into these, you know, that, you know, before the days of true crime podcasts and um, TV shows and, and documentaries, you know, did somebody go back and look at old newspaper articles and police reports about those murders from 71 to 77 and, Something triggers them, and next thing you know, you're you're getting a whole new wave of these crimes right around the the killing fields. Um, and that could I, very well be it because they I, I saw think that's that's very possible. Yeah, right. They saw how easy it was in that area to get away with dumping a body there, and so maybe these people were just spurred on as copycats, or they had these tendencies but were worried about getting caught and then when they realized that this area doesn't do a good job of catching anybody for these crimes this is where i'm gonna go so and 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 it takes a long time sometimes to find these bodies right i mean some of them were were found two days later but Mm -hmm. then some a lot of them were months even years years. yep before they found them and you know it would just be like you said, somebody's looking at that and going, if I ever wanted to kill somebody, that's where I'm going to dump the body mm-hmm. is out here because, you know, they may not ever find it. That's honestly where I where I land, too. Um, I toyed with the idea of something paranormal drawing it there, but like I said, was unable to find enough historical information about that land to tie anything to it. And I, I just ended up landing on this seems like the place that you would just dump and commit these crimes because you thought you were going to get away with it. And it kind of seems like everybody has to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, even, even theoretically bell got away with it. Technically, um, yep. 
because he was he was never even charged with any of those murders. But you know, if if you like if you like this, if you like Adam and I kind of stepping out every once in a while and 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 doing some things on on you know true crime or something else like that, um let us know. Give us some feedback. And and I wanna I wanna let everybody know we 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 touched on these murders in the eighties. Adam and I are actually going to dig into these uh murders that occurred in the eighties um on a Patreon. So you we, we are gonna continue this. Um so if if you're one of our patrons, you have that to look forward to as well. If you enjoyed this, we're gonna give you a little bit more. Um if you're not if you're not a, a, a patron of the show, um, now, if the, if you like this, now might be a good time to to jump in there and and catch some of this because uh, we're going to go on and talk about uh, the murders that occurred in the 80s as well. Right. Um, and if you do like this, like Matt said, we can, we can do some more because there are more that are in our hip pockets that are maybe more paranormally slanted true crime. Mm-hmm. that we can we can do as well but considering we've done mysteries before and this is still pretty much a mystery mm-hmm. we think it fit in kind of well with our mo here yeah i do and it's it, it was a it was a good change of pace I, I tell you you know there's a there's a ton of information out there i mean we we research places where you really got to dig so uh it, it was uh, it was a different experience to, to to research something where all the information is just like right there. It's like here, take it, <laughs> right. take it, take yeah. this. It um, did seem a little easier because we weren't having to <laughs> go into as many historical documents and and <laughs> right <laughs> look around a corner with a mirror to find the information. Where this was just like. Oh, hey, it, yeah. there's books, there's documentaries, there's websites, there's everything on it. Right, right. So if you liked it, if you hated it, whatever, uh, let us know. And the best place to do that is in our Facebook group. It is called The Graveyard. You know, thousands of folks in there every day, you know, sharing stories and jokes and personal experiences and asking for help. It's one of the best groups out there. So if you're not a member now, go jump in there and and that's where you can uh interact with with uh, adam and myself a little bit you can also check out our website which is graveyardpodcast.com and on our site you can find links to purchase graveyard tells merchandise you can get that that new uh skull mike t-shirt uh there you go you know for the summer uh, you know, get you a, a new water bottle with uh, your favorite podcast logo on it. You can even get one with Graveyard Tales on it. Um, but, you know, go go check that stuff out. But that is also where you can become a patron. And and thank you to everyone uh, who has taken the time to donate to the show. We've got a yes. ton of bonus content in there now. Um, so if you need a little bit more Graveyard Tales, that's where you can get it. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It brings us up the charts and it just brings more people into the graveyard. So Adam, this was, um, this was fun oh, yeah. uh, doing the research. And I know it's not a fun topic, but, but I enjoyed doing this. So I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.